Dreamers, and welcome to another episode of The Sandman Unlocked. I'm one of your co-hosts, Sean, and I'm thrilled you're joining us for our breakdown of The Sandman, episode 8, Playing House. I'm joined by two secret brides of the Faceless Slaves of the Forbidden House of the Nameless Knight of the Castle of Dread Desire, Ben. I didn't know that about myself, but hello! (laughs) And Ashley. Well, now now we do. So welcome. <laughs> <laughs> On each TV deep dive, we'll be working our way through four sections. First, we'll summarize that week's episode and provide our hot takes. Then, we'll get into our scene-by-scene breakdown. Afterwards, we wrap up and offer our final thoughts. And we are joined today by Bex. Bex is from Northern Virginia, is an avid listener of the 70MM podcast, which is where we met, and now is a voracious listener to the Sandman Unlocked. While she has no podcast of her own, she loves frequenting on other people's, therefore avoiding any real work. Bex, how are you? I'm good. Thank you guys so much for having me and enabling my condition of not doing any of my own work and just hopping on people's podcasts. (laughs) my favorite thing to do. <laughs> yeah. I, I feel like every podcast just craves guests. They're just like any guests, please bring the guests. <laughs> that makes me feel good that I'm not really wanted. It's just that I, I can talk a lot. So I get it. I'm a, I'm a good filler. I could filibuster any day. It's fine. I love it. I love it. Um, and so what, if any, is your background with the Sandman? My background in, with the Sandman is that my good friend KK uh, tagged me in a post where he said, um, Becca, you need to watch this show. Look at this tall, sad emo boy. And <laughs> <laughs> so then I started watching it on, on Netflix, um, the, the, the TV show, and then I quickly just fell in love with it. I really, really enjoy uh, fantasy and I definitely want to read the books now, but I have not. So I'm just going off my knowledge of the TV show. Ooh, that's great. That's a fun perspective to come from. Like someone who's just seen the show and doesn't have the comic book background. It's, I always think it's really cool to hear people like that perspective. So glad you're here. Oh, thanks. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for being here. All right. Introductions are done. So let's get to the episode. Sean, over to you for the summary. Okay. So, this was another packed episode, as we follow the separate but quickly converging stories of Rose, her brother Jed, her friend Lyda, and the Corinthian. In the Dreaming, we pick up where we left off last episode, with Rose dropping by Dream's palace for a chat. Morpheus explains to Rose that she's a dream vortex, with a mysterious power that will allow her to travel through others' dreams, and, hopefully, track down her missing brother. He advises Rose to continue searching for her brother, both in the waking world, with Matthew's help, and in dreams with his own. The Dream King isn't helping Rose because he's a stand-up guy, though. He really just wants to track down the missing dreams and nightmares from his realm. 
Speaking of which, we finally meet the mysterious Galt, a shape-shifting nightmare who's taken up residence in Jed's mind and severed him from the dreaming. Taking the shape of Rose and Jed's mother, Galt helps Jed dream of a life where he's a daring superhero, the Sandman, instead of an orphan living with abusive foster parents. Meanwhile, the Corinthian is slowly closing in on Rose, having tracked down Unity Kincaid, Rose's great-grandmother, in England. He then follows her to Florida, where he finds Rose, unbeknownst to her, speaking with Matthew the Raven while putting up flyers for Jed. The block is hot, as they say, so the Corinthian switches tactics and focuses on finding little Jed instead, presumably hoping to lure Rose to him. That night, Rose travels freely through the dreams of her housemates in a really cool sequence as she, as she searches for a path to her brother. With Morpheus's help, she eventually tracks down Jed, but before he can tell her where he is, Morpheus dickishly ends the dream because he's found Galt, which is all he really wanted out of this whole thing anyway. Rose, however, picks up enough clues to find Barnaby and Clarice's house, but she's beaten to the punch by the Corinthian, who takes out the wicked foster parents off screen and absconds with little Jed in a really cool convertible. Oh, also, uh, Lyda gets dream pregnant by her ghost husband in a dream house straight out of Grand Designs, but I couldn't figure out how to work that into my summary organically. I also was trying to figure out how to put that into my scene-by-scene -scene breakdown, and you will see me stumble with that later cool. on in this episode. same page. Thank you, Sean. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, Sean, so much for that. So our first order of business is to do our hot takes. Bex, we always let guests go first. So that way we can't steal any of yours. What is your hot take from this week's episode? Um, I have two. I don't think the first one is that much of a hot take because Sean pretty much said it in that lovely summary. But uh, the Sandman is really pissy in this episode. <laughs> <laughs> and he he like he needs to get over his little sad boy routine. I think he's pushing that uh, that envelope a little too hard, especially um, with Rose. I just don't think that's fair. So that's my that's my first one. Again, probably not actually a hot take. Um, and then my other hot take is I I love the subject um, of grief that's in this episode. And I like the different ways it's kind of like interwoven in um, different aspects of this, whether it's moving somewhere or losing someone or wanting to go back to a, a place or a time. Um, I think that was really, really like it was cool to see how that subject took different shades and colors, I think, in this episode. Thanks, Bex. Those are my main ones. Uh, Ashley, how about you? Um, my first hot take is it is. Uncle Barnaby just omniscient or something because how could he possibly have noticed that Jed put that note in that woman's purse? I thought it was Clarice. I thought it was Clarice who saw the note go in and she sold him out. Oh, that's Because she kind of glances over. Mm -hmm. Sure. Dang it. Okay. That clarifies that, but also still pisses me off. Um, Yep, and then my second hot take is is something I've been repeating the entire season. The Corinthians hot. The Corinthians hot. The like Corinthians that's just hot. I mean, I hate this. I hate this about myself, but like the charm. That coat. Yeah, mm. seriously. That and actually said that when they were at the beach, I was like, who wears a coat at the beach? But he's pulling it off. 
And I just love how everybody everybody looks at him as he walks by. Yes. Ev- everyone. I doesn't know. Doesn't matter. Age, you know, sexuality, race, doesn't matter. Everybody checks him out. It's great. Mm-hmm. It's great. Uh, Sean, how about you? Okay, well, uh, R.I.P. Clarice and Barnaby. Good riddance and don't let the door hit you on the way out. Um, I've honestly never been so happy to have two people murdered by a gruesome eyeball-eating monster uh, before. They were, like, they were bad, and we want Jed to be free of them, but we haven't, you know, this is the, this is the Sean take, right, where I criticize stuff. Uh, we haven't seen such, like, kind of flat and one-dimensional one-dimensional characterization since Roderick Burgess in uh, episode one. So I feel like I've been like released from the basement dungeon of lazy storytelling there. Um, Speaking of which, it is kind of interesting to me that both Burgess and Barnaby had a Sandman locked up in their basement. Mm. Both were cruel and greedy. Mm. Both were aided by people who didn't seem so much evil as they were just sort of following orders. Yes. Both were visited by the Corinthian, and both met violent ends. Wow. Hey. Sean. Deep. Amazing. <laughs> I mean, I don't think those, like, parallels were ever really explored in the comics, so I wonder if it's just, like, me reading too much into it, or if the show will, like, have the two Sandmen meet up again and be like, oh, man, you got locked in the basement, too. Um <laughs> Overall, though, I liked how weird this episode got at times, especially the dream sequence with Rose's roommates, like uh, Barbie's magical quest, Chantal's relationship with the sentence, Hal tearing his face off. This is like the Neil Gaiman, like, special technique if you're a character in a fighting game or something, where he just, like, hits you with this rapid-fire combo of, like, far-out story ideas that may come up again or may just, like, leave you wondering about them forever. Um, He does this several times in the comic, and it's great to see it coming out in the show as well. Amazing. Thanks, Sean. Uh, For my hot take... I was, like Sean, uh, enthralled by the dream sequence with Rose Walker moving through the housemate's dream, and I literally cheered with excitement when we saw Barbie and Martin Tenbones. Yes! And I'm not sure what they're going to do. I don't know, but they put it in there, and that was just so exciting to see as a comic book reader to see that those two characters introduced in that way was, was really exciting. Really exciting. So that's my hot take for today. Let's slide over to the scene by scene breakdown. In our first scene, Rose Walker is in the dreaming, talking to Morpheus. He asks her to keep looking for Jed in the waking world, and then he will join her when she falls asleep to continue the search. We are then introduced to Galt, who is sending Jed as the Sandman into an alternate dreaming to fight bad guys. Sadly, Jed wakes up from the dream after being overrun by rats to an actual rat biting his finger. Ashley, let's start with you with this first scene. Oh, goodness. I I really like when anybody challenges dream to be somebody other than he is. So when she, when Rose is, you know, demanding information, I think that's a really ballsy, but also um, indicative move of Rose's character and strength. Uh, so I, I really appreciate her engagement with him, but just quickly going over to Jed, this was heartbreaking. Um, I, 
I was really enchanted by, I can't remember the actor's name that's playing Jed, but his ability to transition between very real dramatic scenes to this kind of sort of hokey pseudo comic book um, presentation of a children's show. Just even the way he's posturing himself, the way he's looking around, like I see the bag, everything about it <laughs> was just, it's, it's hard for especially child actors, I think, to develop that sense of nuance of like, this is a game that we're playing in this case, whereas the other scenes, you're being, you're in real serious danger. Um, so his ability to flip that, I think, was really well executed. I love the costuming in that street scene in his like little hero getup. Um, <laughs> and just the way he and Galt, I mean, he doesn't know what Galt is ultimately, but the way that Galt is attempting to serve him. And we've had that episode where death was trying to explain to Morpheus, you know, we serve humanity in this way. We should be serving humanity. So Galt representing that well and doing that job well in this case, I thought was really compelling. Um, and clearly not power hungry like the other nightmare is the Corinthian, but just really is concerned about this kid in some, in their own way. Uh, so I really enjoyed um, that team up. And Jed is played by Eddie Conraha. Thank you. Absolutely. Uh, Bex, I saw you nodding vigorously as Ashley was saying. Well, I, I'm a very responsive listener, so sorry. <laughs> I know people can't see that, but y'all can. Um, I, I, yeah, Ashley, I think you said it perfectly. Jed, I love the way that he dreams and how, like you said, how it's that kind of kid TV show. I almost feel like it, I think it really hits home on like when a child is experiencing trauma, mm -hmm. they tend to regress. Mm -hmm. So he has to face this horrible reality when he's awake so he can just be really safe mm -hmm. and be a kid and get to live that kid life you probably didn't get to exactly in his dreams so i i really really loved that and i guess like i just from your guys's perspectives i had a question about for galt and that dream ending with the rat i know there was a rat on him in real life but is it that she can't actually make dreams and she can only make nightmares or like mm. did he have other dreams that weren't like that ended well. Like I'm wondering if it always kind of ended sour for him or if, if he actually had like successful, happy dreams sometimes. Yeah. I wish I knew more about the psychology of dreaming. I feel like this is where knowing psychologists would be really helpful as far as how reality ekes out into your dreaming world. But I had just kind of taken it as his external stimuli were breaking in. I didn't, I, I'm, I'm suddenly I'm realizing very protective of Galt. So I was just like, it's not Galt's fault. Galt's doing their best. <laughs> but I love Galt too. <laughs> just for the record, I'm not attacking. Oh no, them. I didn't think you were. I'm just trying to, I just realized, I'm like, why do I suddenly feel so defensive? <laughs> Sean, do you know anything? Um, some things every once in a while. Yeah. Uh, no. Uh, yeah. So I also kind of assumed that, uh, you know, after watching the episode through, so at, 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 you know, at the initial point, we don't really know the extent of control that mm -hmm. Galt exercises over this dream world. Right. Like yeah. from, from, from the beginning of that episode, it could very well be 
that she has like sent these rats to terrorize Jed, uh, we're sort of conditioned to think this might be possible from the previous episode where Morpheus said, you know, this is a nightmare. It's a shapeshifter, not meant to be trusted, like laid that out there, right? And then you have that additional layer, if you're familiar with the comics, the uh, the equivalent to, to Galt, the comics equivalent to Galt, were actually two separate beings, Brute and Glob. And there were two <laughs> nightmare creatures, and then they kind of made a portmanteau to create Galt. But these creatures were just there because they want to set themselves up as rulers of their own dream world. Um, so, so, you know, for familiar viewers, we're expecting something similar like that. And so we're expecting, like, maybe these are, like, you know, this is just, like, her sort of just, like, messing with this, uh, with this kid. Whereas in retrospect now, I'm sort of thinking that, you know, she's controlling a dream world that exists entirely for Jed and her control is not absolute. Like she's not Morpheus, right? Like she's a, an amateur at this for the most part. Um, so that leads me to believe it was like Ashley said that it's some this external stimuli that's breaking through. Like you can only cover up that harsh reality um, with this, with this, this, this more ideal dream you know, so much, right? But it'll eventually come through. Yeah, and one thing, if you kind of watch the actress uh, who is portraying Galt's um, Anne Agbomo, you can see, like, she feels very concerned when the rats start showing up, and it looks like legitimate Mm -hmm. concern, and it's would kind of be a lot to, like, be like, oh, I'm being ashamed. Like, I mean, in that moment, nobody is watching her, so there would be no reason for her to fake being concerned right. because no one is watching Good her. Point. And so in that case, you know, it's she seems legitimately concerned that he is. And I think what she knows, because it seems like she's been doing this for a, for six years, is that she knows that there is some external stimuli that is going to invade into the dream space and cause distress to Jed, who she is trying to cause to not be in distress. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, and looking back, like rewatching it after I, you know, kind of, we had a better sense of her character from watching it through. Um, there's like this really like when, when Jed does his Sandman thing and is going to find the Pied Piper. He looks so cool uh, doing the Sandman thing. He really yeah, does. Yeah. He did. He looks he's so, so cool. Cute. Yeah. Um, he's walking down the street towards like that, sewer and there's like this really maternal sort of smile that she gives before she turns a dial for like the Pied Piper like flute music to start mm-hmm. you know I just thought that it, it, you know in retrospect I thought that was very sweet like she was getting such enjoyment from like his enjoyment you know um oh speaking of Pied Piper can I just say how much uh comic nerd like me appreciated all of the comic book references in the scene um, of course, there's, uh, you know, Jed's costume is the costume of the 1970s Sandman, uh, the version created by Joe Simon and Jack Kirby. Uh, and then the villains also that they mentioned, his like rogues gallery, are all comic book like DC villains. Like on the monitor, you see images of like 
Captain Cold and uh, I think the Mirror Master. And then he mentions like Dr. Death, Johnny Sorrow, and the Phantom of the Fair, which are all really badass names, I have to say. Like those are cool villain names, but those mm-hmm. are actually comic book villains, most of whom interacted with the 1940s gas mask wearing Sandman character. So I appreciate those like little nods to, um, to comic book history. That's Very awesome. Cool. Very cool. All right, let's take a look at our next scene. Rose wakes up and continues the search for Jed after calling Unity, who was being visited by the Corinthian. Rose enlists the others in the house to help hang posters for Jed, but Lyda is still sleeping. She is in a dream with her dead husband visiting a house <laughs> he built for her in his dream. Uh, Sean, you want to kick this one off? <laughs> uh, sure. Okay. So first thing I wanted to say was just that um, I really appreciate the little character moments and interactions that ground us in a sense of reality because so much ridiculous stuff is happening. So when there's something said that like feels like very like human and very contemporary, I always appreciate that. Case in point here, Hal being like, did you figure out the printer? Um, because as we know, that is the most frustrating and evil piece of technology in human existence. <laughs> and so like him first checking in, like, did you figure out the printer? This is just great. I appreciated that. Um, the other thing I will say I want to call out about this scene was that I, I don't know what's happening with Hector and Lyda in their little like dream grand designs house, but it's weird. And I appreciate that. Like, I really appreciated, uh, you know, Hector being like, if I were a dream, wouldn't I disappear when you wake up? And she's asking like, oh, you don't? Well, what do you do? And he's like, well, I go to work, I cook, I work out, all these things. And that's so fascinating. Like, it just like makes your mind, um, it just like, you know, fires all the, you know, uh, imagination cylinders that you have in there. And so I I really thought that was cool. And it really made me intrigued to know what what else is going on there. Bex, how about you? Yeah, I I really like that scene with, with Lyda and I like how her, how she says, Oh, well I shouldn't be here with my ghost husband. And then like you were saying, Sean, he's like, no, 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 no. I'm here all the time. (laughs) I I really, (laughs) and, and I think that kind of gives the question to Lyda, like it plants that seed in her mind of, is this actually an option? Like to, to, to spend more time with him here in this world than in what I know to be reality. Like what, what are really this, this, what's really going on or at odds with what I want? Don't I want to be with my husband here? And isn't that worth the sacrifice? Can't I just stay in this past life that I never got to live? So I think, I think that scene does a good job of planting that question in Lida's brain. Yeah, actually, this episode really, I feel like, is, like, the weirdest episode, and this is, like, the start of the weird. Um, and I was just wondering what you, what you, if you kind of felt the same way. Yeah, I felt like this section in particular <laughs> asked more questions than it answered, which I like to have all of my ducks in a row. So I'm like, hold up. One, 
he's got his own life in the dreaming. I mean, Morpheus, get it together. Everything's gone rogue. What is happening? Um, which is interesting. But now I'm just really curious as to when the other shoe's going to drop because you know there's going to be some sort of tragic ending to this. Like there's going to be some aspect of Lyda's dream husband is going to fall short, I anticipate. And there is going to be some sort of reality break and it's going to be horrible and I'm going to ugly cry again. And so I'm just like, I'm just not letting myself enjoy it. I'm like, no, this is awful. There's something nefarious about this. (laughs) I'm just braced for disappointment. I mean, he's good looking. He builds houses. He cooks breakfast. I don't trust it. I don't trust it. You know. Somehow I trust Dream Husband less than I trust the Corinthian. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, we've talked about that in in a prior episode, right? Because the Corinthian... He is like the super ego on Sarah's like, well, the super ego, it doesn't lie. It is, it is itself, yeah. you know, and it yeah. knows itself. Yeah. We know what he's about. You I don't know what, know what this dead dream husband's about. Yeah. I, I like that question that Bex brought up is, is, is because it's like, that's a question that, you know, that fiction, especially over the last 20, 25 years returns to over and over again. It's just like, if you have the, if you have the option of having this ideal world that you know is not real, uh, would you choose that uh, over over uh, you know over a potentially more bleak reality? Like it's a cool it's a cool step to take. I hope they I hope they explore Lita's thinking with that you know more mm-hmm. as the series goes on, or yeah, in our no- last episode, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And that was explored really nicely, right? Like in the Matrix and with, you yeah, know, jo- right. Johnny, yeah, uh-huh. you know, Joey Pants, you know, trying to get out, you know, talking to Agent Smith. So, yeah. Or all really all like cyberpunk, like where yeah, there's yeah. some sort of mm-hmm. virtual reality mm-hmm. world. Mm-hmm. That's a part of it, right? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. All right. Let's look at our next scene. Rose and Hal go out to hand out posters. Lida visits the foster agency and apologizes while also asking if the agency can check on Jed. Barnaby threatens Jed that if he misbehaves while the foster agency is there, he will, quote, break every bone in his body, end quotes. Back with Rose, she talks with Matthew while the Corinthian circles nearby. All right, Bex, you're up first. Oh, man. The way I hate Uncle Barnaby. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I, one of the reasons I loved like watching this episode is because I love how it focuses on in this world, the foster care system and just like wellness checks and all of those things. I think it was really interesting to see how they handled it. Um, and I would break every bone in Barnaby's body if I even saw him. Uh Um, I love Jed so much. I would do anything for him. And Ashley, you said it earlier. Like, yeah, I, I feel like in this episode, I'm not, or I can't remember who said it, but I'm not upset about what happens to these people. But I think it's interesting, right? Because you have Aunt Clarice and you can't really tell where she has defended Jed where she could and where she feels like she owes allegiance to Barnaby. And I think that's really interesting because it's kind of hard to tell where she's being controlled and abused by her husband Mm -hmm. and what she may or may not be responsible for. 
um, when it comes to Jed. And I don't think, you know, those are the answers I necessarily have, but I, I like that they explore that in this episode and also, yeah, the, the whole, the whole foster agency storyline, I think is just well done. And it's also just, it's sad to see Jed in this position. I just, Ooh, I get so mad when I think about Barnaby though. Like I would do anything for Jed. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So precious. (laughs) Ashley. Yeah. One, um, shout out to Lida for having a high charisma score and knowing that they kind of screwed that visit up and going back and trying to to build some bridges. She rolled well. You know how she gets yeah. that? You she know how she, you know very how she well. gets that? It's because she she doesn't take so she wakes up with her makeup on and her earrings yep. and yep. her necklace. And this is a mm-hmm. this is a power move. This is what a powerful individual does. Perfect oh, yeah. hair, makeup, earrings, necklace mm-hmm. already as soon as she sits up, you know? Yeah, th- this is a woman that's never been told no, and she's not about to be told no now. But uh, the fact that she she goes in there and tries to clean up, um, I really appreciate it. That's like a true friend, making sure that the job gets done however it needs to get done and um, having a, a frank conversation. And I can't imagine how thankless that job is anyway. So to have someone come in, I mean, you immediately see the social worker tense up because she's like, there's going to be another mm-hmm. argument. Um, so the fact that she's able to, to ease the social worker and have a conversation, speaking of just quickly, was the social worker drinking wine at lunch? Yep. That glass was confusing. <laughs> that glass sure was confusing. Was. I, don't <laughs> I was going to ask the same question. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, is that white wine? Right. I thought the same thing. I was like, wait, <laughs> what kind of social worker are you? That was the most unbelievable part of this whole episode was the fact that she was drinking some sort of liquid out of a glass cup. <laughs> yeah. No. Yeah. Yeah. She was, and she was drinking it. Yeah. She was drinking it out of a, a red wine glass because it didn't have a stem. And I was just like, I have questions. Maybe I'm focusing too hard on the props right now, but this is a red flag for me. I definitely saw it. It was like, <laughs> okay, and, I'm not and, the only one. Yeah, I extended grace. I was like, oh, someone just saw this, thought it was cool to put water in. Like that was I I decided to go that direction with it. But like I was no, no, I was seriously was I was leaning so hard into the screen going, That looks yellow. That looks yellow yeah. to me. Um yeah. So you know, it's Florida. They probably privatized like the the social services, and so this is probably a profit oriented <laughs> oh, no. venture. And she is like, you know, she's oh probably gosh. living pretty good. Oh no. <laughs> But but I do I do appreciate that we got that moment. I thought that was necessary. Um, mm-hmm. And then yeah, Uncle Barnaby and that whole sort of dynamic. I do wonder if Clarice just as you as you brought up, Bex. I really appreciate your insight on this. But um, the idea of Jed being there to kind of take the blows that maybe she was taking previous because even the idea of and we're, and we're going to get to that scene later but the idea of her stitching on Jed so he can't go um, mm. makes me wonder what's going on what was going on prior to them having any kid in the house not that that justifies mm. it at all but um, just that whole triangulation dynamic is really horrifying and I think that they they demonstrate the horror well in ways that I wish that they would demonstrate the horror of other real realistic situations better in other episodes and so this i feel like it's a really good balance of this is horrific but you don't need to see everything um Mm. you know so i thought that was really well balanced as horrific as it is um and then 
yeah, when when Rose and Hal are on the beach talking, I just like their friendship. Mm. They're just mm. it's just it's so comforting. You do you do really need like a comforting little friendship scene after all of the the horrific. So just having them chat and her talking about her family and everything um, is just really charming. I enjoy that. I was also very proud of myself that I know the difference between a crow and a raven because when she's like, that's Matthew, and I was like, no, that's a crow. And then when she runs up to the crow and is like, Matthew, and he's like, no, that's a crow. I'm a raven. I'm like, told you. Um, you so know your corvids. You know. really do need to know your See, corvids. I'm still not convinced that there's a difference. I try... <laughs> I read the articles. I work with the uh, Cornell Lab of Ornithology. <laughs> I've looked at their own writing on this stuff, and I still can't tell the difference. I feel like everyone's just trying to trick me. <laughs> <laughs> well, then you're about to get really screwed up because Blue Jay is also Corvids. Son of a... <laughs> okay. No, but you can tell the difference because those ones are blue, Sean. So you're good. Yeah, those are blue. Right, those ones. those are the blue ben. ones. Those are the blue ones. <laughs> Sean, take us take us back where Ashley was going. Take us back to the beach and talk to us about you know the Corinthian showing up and okay. you know his mesmerizing walk across the sand in that jacket. Gosh, so all right. Thanks for refocusing me, Ben. Um, that's my. I think no, that's my I, job. I think that's my <laughs> Ben host producer. So I'm good. I got it. <laughs> I also, I thought there was some great uh, dialogue in those scenes. Like, I really loved Matthew being like, no, that's a crow. That was great, as you noted. I also really loved, um, I, you know, I'm also really fond of Hal and Rose's friendship. And just Hal as a character, generally. Like, it's just so, like, fun to watch, you know. Um, I particularly liked his line asking if uh, Rose's father had any friends, like golf buddies, mm. drinking buddies, what else do straight men with kids do? Like, it was, <laughs> it was just, you know, wonderfully delivered there. And then, you know, I also thought, like, I, I also appreciated, like, the little weird elements, like Ms. Rubio drinking wine at lunch. Um, I kind of appreciated... Potentially. Genuinely, though, yeah. <laughs> A hundred percent, though. Uh, uh, I, but I kind of I appreciate it because it's like it would be so easy to cast the role of social worker as like this, you know, Dickensian sort of sure. um, heartless person. Yeah. Right. Sure, and the show sure. clearly doesn't want to do that because it does. I think the show is like recognizing like what a thankless job this is. Like, mm -hmm. honestly, this person probably like has a master's and is like making far beneath what she need to pay off her student loan payments and things like that. Yeah. So I appreciated their. Um, effort at giving her some dimension and some, you know, some some thoughtfulness and some consideration of like her responsibility to these things. Um, Barney, Barnaby and Clarice, uh, you know, I don't have much to say about it. I do think it's creepy that Barnaby uh, does not blink ever. If you notice, oh, like he yeah. doesn't blink any time he's on camera, not once. Uh, so that is appropriately creepy. Also, did you happen to notice that their kitchen table is coffin-shaped? It's yes! a pentagon? Isn't that weird? I thought that was really weird. <laughs> what a strange design I kind of liked choice. their table. I, I, like, noted that. I was like, oh, that's fun. But, yeah, you're right. It's kind of coffin-like. <laughs> excellent, excellent. Thanks, everyone. <clears throat> do, you guys, do you guys hear that? That whistling? Should we go... Should we go check it out? Let's, let's go check it out. We'll be right back. All right. In the back half of the episode now, 
Jed tries to pass a note along to the foster agency rep, Eleanor, but Barnaby and Clarice end up finding it. When she is back in her office, Eleanor is killed unceremoniously and off screen by the Corinthian. He finds out where Jed is and heads there. Hal and Rose return home to a quiet house, and he tells her to pursue her dreams now. Ashley, what do you want to pull out of this one first? I, I, and there's like so much to unpack here, but I do just want to circle specifically to the conversation between Hal and Rose, because I think the advice he gives her is just really solid advice. I, I really appreciate his honesty in this moment of like, I like these people, but if I got my shot, I'd be taking it. You know, I'm not going to sacrifice everything that I've kind of worked for just to keep this house open and, and live here and kind of be dead ended by this, this life, you know, I would, yeah, I would yeah. try to try to make it. And I think the fact that he can be that, that honest with her and that upfront really says a lot about who he is a, as a person or they are as a person and how Rose is as a person. Um, and again, it's just, it helps sort of establish that friendship that they have mm-hmm. um in a way that doesn't feel clunky. I feel like sometimes there are some forced relationships that I'm just like, I just don't think those two people would have connected in the way that they did. Um, to, to the point where this this relationship between Hal and Rose feels more believable to me than her friendship with Lyda. Uh, I still have a hard time believing that friendship, but this one between you know her and Hal, I think is really lovely. And the fact that he's just that frank mm. Um, is at first a little sort of, it, it caught me on the back foot, but then I was like, no, that's that's solid. He's trying to protect her. He sees that she is capable of far more than just staying put and writing about other people, that she has a whole life ahead of her. Yeah, and it's almost like, I mean, it seems like Lyda and Rose's friendship is all about big moments, like when they were there for each other. Yes. And that's mm-hmm. a different kind of friendship. Sure. That that's can a good point. be very different than one that is more it's just it's uh, Hal and Rose have a different level of intimacy based off like what they're doing. Yes, right? absolutely. Like, when you're there and you're like the other person's like grief connector, that mm-hmm. just is gonna and it, it, it feels <laughs> weird. Like in like their relationship sometimes feels distant and feels cold, but it's always like protective in some kind of way. That yes, I think probably came came out of that experience with each other. Absolutely. As a millennial, I love me some trauma bonding, but I agree with your <laughs> observation that that it could be the differential between the relationships. That's a really good highlight. Yeah. Bex, you want to take it from there? Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I love this scene too. And I thought I, everything, Hal feels like a friend. Like when I'm watching it, I feel like he's a friend to me. Yeah. So everything he says feels very friend-like. You know, a friend is going to say things that maybe you don't want to hear, but they're going to say it because they love you. And I really I really liked how he talked about coming home to Florida. And now here's Rose. And she's trying to figure out what's next about if this is home. Like, mm-hmm. is this me coming home? Is this what I should be doing? I think Lida has to ask herself that question in this episode too, in a different way oh. of like with being in her, with her husband in the dream, like, can I come home? And, he, and how rightly says, you know, this wasn't my dream. Coming back to Florida wasn't my dream. You don't have to have this reality, you need to pursue your actual dream, 
which is writing. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, I liked the kind of connected flow, especially like as the episode goes on and I think Morpheus mentions, um, home later, um, yeah. in the episode, I really, I really liked that connection. I thought it was a, it was a cool scene between them. And I, I really like how he just feels like, I just, he feels like someone I know or someone that we all have in our life. Um, and Ashley, you said it like Lida and <laughs> Rose are definitely trauma bonded, <laughs> which is a good thing. Like, it's not a bad thing. Right. They have each other for that purpose. They can connect on that level. Um, mm -hmm. so their, their friendships are very different, but I, I appreciate that, especially as Rose being at least looking a lot younger mm -hmm. than both of those people. I really like the, um, the age difference in her friendships as well. Yeah. Sean, wh where do you want to go with this? Yeah. Well, I, I, you know, I think, I, th I think you're, you're spot on that sort of the theme of this episode is home. Like the theme of the previous episode was family. Um, the nice thing is that something as broad as home is a, is a very sort of amorphous idea, right? Like for some people, it's a place of, you know, comfort and safety and protection. And so for some people, it's a way of, you know, avoiding the real world or not having to, you know, um, a sort of protection to the point of, um, to an almost detrimental point. And for some people it's, 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 it's never that really, like it's never quite achieves, you know, what the, the idea of home should be. So the fact that this was the sort of um, central concept that's refracted in all these ways through the different characters and their relationships uh, to each other was 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 really interesting and a nice thing to see. Now that aside, I also want to point out that the Corinthians knife holsters were really cool. Uh, <laughs> he had those like leather like yes. shoulder straps where he yes. kept his knives. Like that was so uh -huh. badass. I mean, he's a professional now. Uh, yeah, yeah. And and I did like how the I don't know if I even liked it, but like the social worker, like as soon as he walked in, she was like, "Oh, hi there." Yep. And uh, oh, she like cocked her head and was like, "Oh, uh -huh. yeah." Uh -huh. <laughs> um, Imagine how many hot people she gets to see though daily. Not that many. Exactly. So, <laughs> you know, <laughs> she'd been waiting for that one. That one had been like written in she'd her dream waiting. journal at home. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and now we know what the Corinthian does with those eyes, right? Because we get <laughs> him. Snack. Yeah, we get those like gross, like squelching sounds and the eyes <laughs> on the table there with like drops of blood dripping onto the, onto the papers. I appreciated that truly graphic and disgusting moments in this show. Yeah, I wonder why I, he took I his listened. glasses off before he ate the eyeballs though. That was kind of weird, wasn't it? Oh, that's a good question, Ben. <laughs> Beck, sorry, I interrupted you. What were you going to say? Oh, no, I interrupted you. I was just going to say I watched this episode with my with my headphones on, my Bluetooth headphones, oh, no. and that squelching was top level, like, <laughs> detailed, and I thought I was going to hurl. It's <laughs> like, I'm not watching any more episodes with my headphones on. Yeah, they really went hard for that Foley work. Yeah. All right, let's take a look at our next scene. Rose awakens in the dreaming and moves through her housemate's dreams, searching for Morpheus and Jed. 
She eventually finds Morpheus and the path that will find Jed and Galt. Jed comes out as the Sandman to fight Morpheus, but is stopped by Galt, who lets Jed know that Morpheus is there for her. Jed finally recognizes Rose, and they are reunited in the Dreaming, but he is unable to tell her specifically where he is. Dream takes Galt back to the Dreaming, and Rose wakes up. Uh, Ashley. This was... This was heartbreaking. I loved all the transitions between everyone's dreams. Mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. just the stage setting for each one was so dynamic that I really enjoyed seeing that. And so much so, I was watching this with my husband, and he was just like, "Who are these people?" Just because of how elaborate their dreams were, um, especially when it came to Barbies. Really, frankly, Ken's was the most boring. I was like, "Oh no, you're naked." Like, that sucks for you, I guess. Conventionally attractive person. <laughs> yeah, but... he doesn't seem like the kind of person that would be too upset about being naked, like, in the street. Like, right, there are right. People I feel who like. Would be really upset, and then there's the people who aren't upset. He feels like a person who wouldn't be upset. Right, exactly. So, I, I mean, look at his hair. He's He wouldn't be. Like, just based <laughs> on his like, hair. He's, like, holding himself and everything. I'm like, I don't think that's what you'd be doing, buddy. Like, right. I, Exactly. So I, I feel like the the real fear in that nightmare is specifically Barbie holding all the cards and rejecting mm. him in some way, as mm. opposed to just like mm. being vulnerable. I think mm. I think it really because we see that moment earlier when she says that they're going to take some posters to put up when they go to see their realtor, and he's like, "Uh, babe," <laughs> and she's like, "What? We'll give some to our realtor too." So there's clearly some like tension between them in general so i liked that that was highlighted in his nightmare but also like uh, boring let's skip ahead um whereas everyone else's dreams were very interesting hal's horrifying but in the best way possible um zelda and chantelle so weird loved that um imagine having a relationship with a sentence just uh chef's kiss (sighs) um but then yeah when they finally find jed that exchange i mean i i had a I kind of anticipated Morpheus to be like, cool, got my nightmare, see ya. But just the way it was done and handled, I got so upset. I was so angry, just absolutely furious at how, I mean, Rose was, she's like, where are you going? I still need help. What do you mean you're leaving? Um, And just how panicked Jed was. It was just heartbreaking. That was a heartbreaking departure. Hmm. Bex, was there a particular one of the dreams nightmares that you really enjoyed? Um, I really liked Barbies. Mm. Um, again, I don't. I think you guys referenced the creature she's with earlier. I have no idea who that is, but I was like, oh, so cute. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and I also really liked Zelda's dream in the graveyard. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought that one was really, really interesting. Um, I was I was curious. Do you guys have really vivid dreams? Like, do you remember your dreams? Are they really odd? I can go first yeah. and just say no, uh, and then pass it <laughs> <Okay>. along. <laughs> Sean, what about you? Yeah, for sure, definitely. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Cool. Because I have really vivid dreams, mm. like nightly, and I remember most of them mm. right when I wake up. So it felt comforting, I think, to see. You know, with the exception of Ken, these kind of more outlandish dreams it, it i don't know it just like kind of gave me comfort i really really liked zelda's though i think mm-hmm. it just hit the the creepiness but also that's i think when morpheus says this is what feels like home to her mm. line um and i just really loved that line a lot 
Yeah, my childhood was comprised of me sitting at the breakfast table while my younger brother, Patrick, producer Patrick, would come down and spend, I don't know, anywhere from seven to 12 minutes talking about all of his dreams that he had the previous night. He sat there and listened to all of them. Um, I complain about this on other podcasts that we also host together. Uh, and uh, this season, we're playing a video game that's all about dreaming in our other podcasts. And so he's like, Ben. Every introduction, I'm going to talk about dreams for a while, and you just have to sit there and be okay with it. So there you go. That's my life when it comes to dreaming. You're a good brother. (laughs) That's hard to do, especially with your sibling. Yeah. 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 So, uh, Sean, anything that you wanted to yank out of this? Well, I I think my favorite was probably, probably unsurprisingly for those of you, uh, those of you who know how much I like, like, sort of creepy, more horrific things was Hal's scene. I thought that was so well done. It was just so disturbing uh, mm-hmm. and so well realized, you know, that gruesome faceless visage saying, uh, you're going to have to help me. Mama's running out of hands, right? Like that was so uh, terrifying and terrible and something that I can imagine being the case for a like performer right like someone questioning you know what is the real who who is who's who's the real them and that was mm-hmm. not mm. something that was taken directly from the comic it was mm-hmm. sort of it was changed definitely like it was changed significantly and i think it was made more powerful for it and uh a, a cooler scene because of the changes they made so i want to you know just like give props to everyone involved in that basically um, I also really appreciated like the little details of the words and letters on signs being uh, not clear, being like, mm. m- you know, uh, disarranged sort of. Uh, I, you know, and I don't know whether it's true or not that you can't read in dreams. Uh, I think that's a thing that I learned from um, Batman, Internet? the animated series. Uh. <laughs> when I was a little Aww. kid, because there's better. like an episode where where Batman was, uh, he had this like ideal life as Bruce Wayne and his parents were still alive and everything, but he like opens up a newspaper and the words are all scrambled and that's how he like realizes uh, he's in a dream and it was like the Scarecrow or the Mad Hatter or something, one of those guys. Dr. Um, Destiny maybe? So yeah. No, unfortunately <laughs> not. It was definitely a Scarecrow. <laughs> Or Mad Hatter. But, you know, I don't even know if that's real, but I thought it was a cool detail to add. And uh, R.I.P. Kevin Conroy there. Um, mm-hmm. I also, totally. yeah, you know, for saying that. yeah, really loved also uh, Barbie's scene. I, if things work out as we hope they do, Ooh. then we'll be seeing more of her and mm-hmm. her quest that she's on and i think the the actor who plays her does a great job oh, and like makes me want to follow mm-hmm. along in her quest and of course you know her 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 big dog buddy martin tenbones um want to see more of him as well so that was really cool and then you know the the final face off between dream and and galt was so 
sad there where she's like, oh, I'm sorry, Sandman, to him and all that. It was such a surprise, uh, you know, just from my familiarity with the, like, original subject matter. It was so... It was such a nice change. I love when they take when they when they take a a, a character who is fairly you know one dimensional and give that person depth and um, you know additional motivation and provoke our sympathies in interesting ways. And I think they really came through with that one here. I, I really enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Well, I think that teases up nicely here for our last scene. The Corinthian saves Jed, notice the scare quotes, Uh, Lyda Hall gets pregnant in a dream, but also in real life. Rose figures out where Jed is and heads over there, but Jed isn't there anymore. Galt and Morpheus have a debate about choice in changing one nature until he sends her into the darkness for a few thousand years. Bex, you are up first. Woo, buddy. The <laughs> I don't I don't know where to begin with Lyda. Um, <laughs> that was so weird. But, How do you talk about that? Yeah, this is the weirdest well, episode. Like this this episode is weird for sure. Well, so it's like we know that Unity had a child, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I watching episode eight made me wonder if that's also how she was impregnated, like, Mm. I don't know. I don't know. Um, So I was like hoping that maybe it was more of a better situation, I guess, for lack of a better term for unity than maybe I originally imagined for her. Um, But I thought that was really interesting that whatever was happening to Lyda was powerful enough to change her waking world. Um, that, that was really interesting. And I think it kind of goes into Morpheus's own struggle with control and power. Um, I just, uh, yeah, there's just so much there. Like it kind of makes my head spin a little bit. Um, but now Lyda just has this whole other reality. She has to, to, oh, I don't know. That's, this is honestly a nightmare for me. Like, oh my gosh, Mm -hmm. no. (laughs) She looks like she's three months pregnant, right? Oh yeah. No, it was horrifying. It was just truly like, as soon as, as soon as it happened, when she just kind of ballooned up, I was like, oh, absolutely not. I would hate that. I don't care how much I love Alan. I do not want it to happen like that. (laughs) That's horrifying. Um, I've literally had dreams like that. So I think that was also terrifying. Me too. too. It was like. Where really? you're like, act, wow. you just like look down and you're like eight months pregnant. Yes. Yeah, no, it's terrifying. Yeah, yeah that's really terrific. Like, Ooh, yeah. Maybe this is why I don't trust Dream Husband. I was like, uh-uh, you don't get to just, <laughs> there needs to be a conversation first. I'm sorry. Yeah. Like, you're right. Cause it's kind of like manifested. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's they so were doing a lot of dream reconnecting. <laughs> like, that is true. That seems to be true. the majority that's great. I'm sure they're, they, were, they probably weren't using a dream condom. <laughs> 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 Probably not. Just oh horrifying. God. No, no IUDs in the dream world. No. <laughs> but yeah, just absolutely, absolutely horrifying. And so then when she steps out of the bathroom, it's just like, I'd be freaking out way more than she is. I would hate this. How is she so chill? Yep, yep. Uh, Ashley, why don't you take us over uh, with the Corinthian saving Jed? 
Yeah. How'd you feel so about when, that? Yeah. Whew, when when Jed comes out and sees the carnage, it didn't connect right away for me what had happened. Then I was like, oh wait. Oh wait. Cause when they were first panning over everything, I was like, did Barnaby just like go mm. off? Like I was really I was honestly more terrified for Jed. But did uh, you see when he when when he when he first heard Jed call for Rose like before the Corinthian came to the door like he wrapped the mm-hmm. belt around his hand with the buckle out that's so yes. messed up that's like not yeah. even like that's beyond abusive parent level like buckle out mm. that's crazy yeah no mm-hmm. he's I mean again just highlighting how horrific and heinous a man he is um so it just really they've done a very good job of making you uh celebrate the Corinthians actions which is another way in which he's like so very charming and that's what makes him horrific because he wins you over every time um but then yeah just kind of looking through all the the wreckage and everything i'm just like i i thought you were neater about your work than this my guy (laughs) like (laughs) what what kind of fight did (laughs) barnaby put up um and uh, and honestly, I'm a little bit surprised. I guess I mean she's she's not exactly known for her bravery, but I am surprised that Clarice didn't like somehow just sprint out, and we didn't see her like try to make a break for it. But um, but even in the moment, it was weird to have the Corinthian as sort of a, a moment of relief because again, we know what we're dealing with when it's the Corinthian. So then when Jed's like looking around, and neither Barnaby nor Clarice are around, and then the Corinthian steps out. I was like, oh, okay, it's just the Corinthian, which is so twisted. Um, so I do kind of find it funny now when they're like speeding off in the Corinthian's uh, uh, convertible, and Jed just looks like he's the at peace for the first time. Is yeah, yeah, the nightmare, the the big bad wolf car. Um, yeah. uh, he, the fact that Jed looks at peace for the first time in ages is just. It's, I mean, it's heartbreaking because he just doesn't know. He doesn't know. Sure. Well, I mean, in his mind, probably anything is better than where he was, which is probably right. accurate. Yeah. And yeah like yeah. being with a Corinthian is actually probably better for him than being where he was. Yeah. Fair enough. Fair you enough. You know, because at the end of the day, it like, if the Corinthian were to decide to kill him, it doesn't seem like he like, he doesn't like toy with his victims. He just kills them and they're dead. Right. And so, I mean, well, I don't know. We've, we've seen some of those relationships he's had where he's clearly, I mean, maybe he doesn't like go through torture, but he does lull them into a, into a false sense of security, which could feel probably Mm -hmm. like betrayal for some of the guys that he's murdered. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, all right, Sean. So Galt and Morpheus have quite a conversation and I feel like this is right up your alley. Yeah, I loved this. I loved this because it was such a change from the original series, as I mentioned, where the two missing nightmares were brute and glob, and they just wanted to set up their own uh, their own sort of dominion to rule, where they could have their own dreaming they were in charge of. And the way this was changed, for one thing, you know, it 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 plays with our empathy and our 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 sense of who we you know feel sympathetic towards among the characters um but it's also a great way to reinforce the kind of overarching themes of the series and connect it to um individual plot lines right like this 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 idea of morpheus being locked into his sense of 
responsibility, his role, his duty. He is what he is, and that's kind of, you know, all that that he is. And this is coming up in the show in many more ways earlier and more frequently than it was in the comic. And it's one of the strongest thematic through lines of the comic. So I love to see this explored and reflected in different different ways uh, in the in the series itself. I also loved to see, you know, Lucien, who's always willing to, you know, kind of stand up to dream and say, and say what, you know, what she thinks should be happening. But in particular to kind of stake, take a stand here and say, you know, that, that she didn't start out that way. She used to be something else before, she was his librarian, um, mm-hmm. which is both, you know, brave of her because Morpheus is is scarier than we've ever seen him before, right? Like, like, you know, uh, Galt says she's not afraid. Morpheus says you should be, and then he kind of uncreates her. Alucian uh-huh. still is willing to say that you know I used to be something else, and then it also brings up the idea of like, what was that? What was Lucienne yeah. before? She was Dream's librarian. Um, again, one of those moments that just like makes your imagination go. You just want to learn uh, so much more. So I thought that was a, a really well-crafted scene. I thought the ideas that were in conflict were meaningful and important and well-explored. And just, just, just uh, yeah, uh, A+, a plus all around. Absolutely. All right, well, we're going to go pop over into the graveyard and see what's going on over there, and uh, we'll be right back. All right, well, thank you all for doing that scene-by-scene breakdown and letting us know how you were feeling, picking some nice things out. But here is your final thoughts. This is your last moment to make sure if there's something that we didn't talk about that you get a chance to lift it up so everyone gets a chance to hear about it. Bex, as our guest, we will start with you as always. Thanks. Um, I think, and Sean said it in the the last scene with Galt and Morpheus, I like how Morpheus says you, we don't choose to be created, but also at the same time, like Lyda got pregnant in your dreamland. So IDK, like maybe check on your realm. Like that baby also didn't get choose to be created, but like, do you even know that it's being created? So I, I just really liked the kind of, their conversation I thought was really interesting and in how much he like, he really is like a Lord in that sense. Mm-hmm. And I, I just think that's really fascinating to see that, that side of him. So I thought that was, that was really cool. Not cool. Uh, cool to watch. I don't think it's cool that he's being all bossy. <laughs> totally. Totally. Uh, Ashley. Yeah. So two things, one track com is not a real website. Oh, that was my final <laughs> thought. Too. That was so funny. It was so funny. It was so funny. <laughs> I love fictional search engines. So there should great. be so good. an archive of fictional search engines. <laughs> so that's so disappointing though. I wish it was real. I know. It was the first thing I checked. As it was soon so as it funny. popped up, I was like, hold on. Um, <laughs> and then Is and that then, domain available or did it redirect somewhere? No, I think it's available. We should buy it, and then we could redirect people to our podcast. There you go. Oh, Smart. my gosh. See, this is the brain of a producer. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Sorry, your second one? No, my, sec- my second one is really just that this, 
and I think Bex brought it up really well, but um, this whole episode brings up a lot of really interesting ontological questions that just I feel we'll probably be re- wrestling with with the rest of the, the season. And I hope we explore, you know, in season two a little bit more as well with regard to just the scope of Morpheus's power and then how his relationship with his creations change um, over time as he sort of tries to adapt his role um, and kind of come off of his uh, high horse a bit, which I think is necessary for the health of his realm. Um, so I'm just really looking forward to those pivots that all of the key players in the dream world sort of take. Thanks, Ashley. Sean? Okay, well, for my final thoughts, I usually try to go through the list of notes I've taken and like find some things that I haven't been able to bring up in the conversation. But I feel like I've brought up pretty much everything in conversation that I had originally wanted to talk about. Um, I guess just completing my, you know, following my thought from the previous section, I also thought it was like a little extra cold of Morpheus, like when Lucian is like, you know, she's basically like, come on, man, change is a thing. People change, things change, whatever. And he's like, all right, back to the library, bye, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like, he just completely dismissed her. Like, this is someone who is not willing, whatever, the things that he doesn't want to confront, he just won't, and he won't have anyone around him talking about either. And this is uh, a... This is a, it's a difficult self-destructive thing that's understandable because, you know, if something uh, makes you think about stuff you don't want to think about, then, then, um, you know, and you have, and you, you're, you're a, a, a person with the power to just kind of make it go away, then you'd mm. be inclined to do that. But mm. over the course of the series, I'm going to imagine, I imagine we're going to see what the consequences are of that sort of myopic vision are, um, you know, for someone even as powerful as Morpheus. So mm. uh, cool to see it and looking forward to how it plays out. Thanks, Sean. So this episode, we really focused on uh, quite a few things, but in particular, we all managed to find this theme of home. Uh, and obviously this episode was called Plain House. And, and I don't think that wasn't done purposely, right? And that continues this theme from last week of family now to home and what home means and how we dream. And when we dream, we're coming back home and, and kind of how all that, you know, ties in. Uh, this is also a really weird episode. I think we've seen some odd things maybe in the dreaming in previous episodes, but really walking through all of those people's dreams and or nightmares. And they're really starting to lean into this, which makes sense because if you made it this far, you're probably interested enough in the characters that even though if this is getting weirder, you're probably in it for that particular reason. I mean, I'm wearing, sorry, I just, I'm wearing a Twin Peaks t-shirt right now. So I am right at home with weird TV, you know, I'm like, (laughs) I'm there for it. Excellent. Excellent. And there's just so much happening. You know, I thought that they did a really great job of conveying this idea of a uh, dream vortex and everything is just sucking to her in in the dreaming, in the waking. Everything is circling around um, Rose Walker and what is happening. And then lastly, this kind of this question of can we change and, you know, and what that means for things that are created for one specific purpose, but maybe they want to do something different. 
I also, of course, want to say a special thank you to Bex for coming on to our podcast. Bex, thank you so much. And do you have anything that you'd like to plug? Um, well, first of all, I just want to say thank you guys so much for having me. I'm I'm just really impressed and inspired by everyone's thought process and just analysis of the different scenes and the, the knowledge you guys have. It's like really eye opening to me. And I'm just glad that I could have a conversation with you guys. And um I'm very elusive on the internet, but I have a letterboxed account where you can read me only give things five stars or four stars because I am very bad at critiquing. <laughs> um, but my uh, my letterbox username is BexChecks, so you can find me there. And yeah, I just want to thank you guys again. This is really fun. Yeah, thank you so much for being here. And, and we'll make sure that's in the show notes. Uh, on that fives and fours, uh, I will say that one podcast idea that Patrick and I had when we were trying to figure out things was, what if we did a short review podcast of just whatever is popular at that moment, but we only talked about the good part of it? No matter what, we would only find the good part of it and be like, hey, if you just want to hear two people talk about the good part of whatever's new and or Avatar, you know, a podcast, doesn't matter. We're only mm. going to talk about the good thing uh, of it. So I appreciate that, Bex. I think it's a good thing to have. I think a lot of people are looking for just like, oh, we just want some positivity. There's enough people out there being super critical. So Thanks. I like it. I like it. Thanks for being here. I also want to shout out our silent co-host, uh, Beans, Ben's cat, which we just got to see on camera a second ago so you know not on the mic but an important part of the show nevertheless thank you beans and thanks for listening to this episode of the sandman unlocked and remember never trust the storyteller only trust the story thanks for tuning in to the sandman unlocked an odd conduit media production you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Sandman Unlocked. Join us on Discord as well. Thanks to our show producer, Patrick Childers, and to Lieutenant Headtrip for our theme and incidental music. If you'd like to support us directly, head over to our Patreon. You can follow Ashley on Twitter at D-E-E-D-E-E underscore K and on Instagram and TikTok at Ashley Mowers. Find Sean on Twitter at Lon Dogson and find Head Trip everywhere at LT Head Trip. You can get all of this info and more in the show notes. Make sure to follow and subscribe and review us wherever you listen. Until next time, and remember, never trust the storyteller, only trust the story. Odd Conduit Media.